Just because, wait, hold on. Just because you've come to this conversation with, wait, no, no. Just because you've come to this conversation with zero understanding of any of the policies you're talking about, please don't project that on me. This conversation could have been entirely interesting in like 50 different ways, just because you're utterly clueless on everything except phrases that have to do with materialism or whatever philosophy you're gonna talk about, doesn't mean that I came here clueless to argue about the specific policies that I talk about or advocate for. So I'm not hand-waving you are with your utopian third party. Oh, I'm on the ground wait. talking about real issues that are very complicated and affect a lot of people. We're not on 8 Mile. We're on Twitch, okay? Yeah. I have to talk fast because you, again, talk like three times as much for this conversation. Okay, there you go. What is going on over at Twitch? It is not just for gaming anymore. There is a rough and tumble political scene and we've got Twitch streamer Dylan Burns here from the Hippy Dippy Roundtable. We'll get into politics on Twitch, getting the left focused on local government over culture wars, CRT, race in America, and of course, the metaverse. I'm Stephen Kent, this is Right Now. So tell us a little bit about the Hippy Dippy Roundtable Championship, which finally just concluded. Mm -hmm. We've got a repeat winner. Destiny took on Infrared on your show. Recap the debate for us. So uh, Destiny uh, has defended the Hippy Dippy Championship after winning it, and which was a very controversial decision when he did win the championship, which uh, where there was a judge's mix-up. And uh, many people call it the hippy dippy screw job in reference to, of course, the uh, Montreal screw job, where uh, there was a mix up before. But he eventually was decided that he was the champion, and he defended against Infrared, which is on an online communist figure. And um, it was very interesting because um, for somebody who's like, you know, uh, like of, of the people, for the people, he obviously hasn't hired union workers to work on his audio because I couldn't <laughs> understand half the things he was saying. So that was a problem. I thought these people were professionals, right? Uh, you, professional you would think, streamers. You would think he was a professional streamer, but I guess just much like Alec Baldwin, he hired non-union labor. And that resulted in a, in a very bad product with, with when it comes to his mic quality. And... Um, you know, they had a debate on whether, whether you should vote for Democrats and Infrared thought you should vote for third parties, but he never really showed how it would work or how it would be effective in the modern two-party system or how you could do it. And so ultimately, the judges decided that he was not the winner, and he said he didn't care before um, creating his own belt the next day and uh, being a little a little salty man on the internet. I like that. DIY projects are lost these days. Like, it's good to see someone really going out and you know, spending some time making something that makes them feel good. Yeah, you know, a communist owning the means of production. Yeah. I just... Uh, Wish he could own up to his feelings. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about when you started the Hippy Dippy Roundtable, because this thing is really, I think, blown up on Twitch and on YouTube. I mean, tons and tons of people watch this stream, watch your channel, and are going in there for these really raw, like, all-out-there debates on whatever your motion is on any given week. When did you start it, and why do you think it is taking off? I started it about a year ago, and the Hippy Dippy Roundtable, originally it did not have a lot of the stuff that it has now, which originally there was no championship, there was none of that. I would just get eight random people, and I would always, originally, my whole thing was I want four right-wingers and four left-wingers, because on Twitch and on YouTube, my biggest issue was that I'd look around, and it was a bunch of left-wingers talking to left-wingers saying, well, I love socialism, well, I love socialism too. Wow, amazing debate we just had there, everyone. Everybody's been enriched intellectually now, and on the right, you'd have something similar, like... I want to lower taxes. Well, I want to lower taxes too. And it's like, great, wonderful. We all agree. And I wanted to create something where people could have actual heated conversations about the differences they have or possibly even productive conversations. And so I got four people from each side and would have them come together and debate. And slowly it's grown. And it's probably, at this point, it is the largest roundtable on political Twitch. 
um, in existence right now by a long shot. And I'm very happy that people have supported it over time and as it's continued to grow and we've added more rules and, and, and formalized it and grown to even have a staff that helps produce it. Now. Well, it's hugely entertaining and you know it's a livelihood for people. Like People are involved on it. Mm-hmm. And like, what you, like you just said, it's really real debate. And I imagine you have a theory of debate and discourse that's in the country right now that we don't have real debate in the public square. What is your theory of how debate should be and that you are trying to bring to your channel? Because there are moments where it's just obviously people screaming over each other and you have to mute them all. And it's like, well, what's constructive about that? But you know, you turn on the TV sometimes and I don't see anything constructive there either. Well, of course. And my, my idea is I think people uh, are either on one, two ends of the spectrum, and I think they're both wrong. On one end of the spectrum, people are like, debates need to be these Oxford-level, uh, like Zizek engaging with Jordan Peterson, where they do these long diatribes back and forth, back and forth. But to me, that gatekeeps conversation. Number one, most people don't know how to engage with stuff like of that level. And it's not that entertaining, and people don't really want to tune into that. You don't hear the family around the dinner table going, like, God, I'm so excited to see the local Oxford debate on whether socialism is ready for a modern era in the age of multipolarity in a post-COVID war. Like, that's not the type of stuff people want to listen to. But on the other end, I don't want mud wrestling when it comes to uh, my <laughs> politics and people engaging with each other. As much as, as a huge wrestling fan, as much as I, I love uh, wrestling— I can't stand the like blood and guts like backyard. Everybody smashing chairs over their head constantly with with glass breaking. But that is part of what you do. It is part of it. You kind of ham it up like with like the championship round. Like you have like an announcer who's announcing the debaters. But my thing is, if if other people are doing like mud wrestling shows, and and then you've got people who are trying to do these like very intellectual stuff, we're the middle ground where we can give people what they want. Where if you look at the last Hippie Tippy Championship, the undercard for, for the main thing was had Gothics, Joe Lewis, Hunter Avalone, and Connor Points. And Gothics, who is somebody who is part of this network or program or whatever yeah, you want to call it. Yeah, contributor here, rightly. <laughs> exactly. She doesn't do debates. But yeah. she, after that, and she said this in a recent video, that she thought that debate went pretty well overall. And to be able to have somebody go in there and have a mostly, you know, polite conversation, even though there were some heated moments... Before having a just a blood sports bloodbath in the main event, I think shows that we were able to do the best of both worlds and find that middle ground that makes people, wow, I want to tune into this, and there's something for everybody here. What I'm wondering, too, is you don't see the stuff on Twitter. Like, every now and then you see something sort of like it. You don't see it on the news, except for C-SPAN, maybe. And you, uh, But even then, it's that Oxford kind of stuff you're talking about. And on Instagram, you don't see debates at all. So why is it succeeding on Twitch? Like, what what about Twitch do you think is making it so that either the audience or the platform is, like, right for this kind of stuff? So the thing that I would I say that makes this different than, say, just watching C-SPAN, and this is something that's unique to Twitch and unique to live streams, is the interactivity of, of like, twat, of, of, of the chats and uh, of the viewers is that you get a live reaction from the audience when people say something. If somebody makes a great point, you see the audience react to that because you can look at the chat and see them. And so you see the the audience be like, wow, that was a great point. Oh, boo, that was terrible. I can't believe you said that. (laughs) And having that real audience interaction and having uh, the people who are doing these being able to work off of that means that you have these, these creators able to um, interact with their audience while interacting with other people. And so it's not just that 
the people in question are debating yeah. and interacting, but it's also the audience gets to feel like they're somehow a part of this because they're able to chat with other people in the chat about what's happening currently, yeah. and they're able to show their support to their favorite creators or their favorite points or what they what they believe is the, is the way to go in the conversation. Well, y'all, let me just take a minute here real quick to welcome everybody watching and listening. This is Right Now. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and I've got here at the table today, we've got Twitch streamer and political consultant Dylan Burns, founder and co-chairman chairman of the Hippy Dippy Roundtable here with me, and Shoshana Weissman, a fellow at the R Street Institute, returning. Thanks to both of you for being here. A quick reminder to all of you, if you haven't done so already, give us a like and subscribe. I don't know what you've been doing if you've been watching the show this long and have not done it, so hit that button. We've got new content every Thursday and on the days throughout the week from different contributors. Do leave a comment and let me know what you think. I will write back, we'll be pals, and it will all be great. Uh, so guys, with the, the thing about Twitch, tell me a little bit about the political environment. I, I know it's it's reputation is for being pretty like far left. There's a big far left uh, uh, um, cohort on Twitch that sort of makes it this incredibly energetic space. It's why AOC went and did an event on Twitch. Do you think that that's overblown? Because I've known in the past that there were some like really far right and let's just say like alt-right bad, like neo-Nazi streamers on Twitch as well. Most of them have been purged at this point. Are there people left over who just represent a more you know, bland, conservative, or even libertarian point of view there? So I would say that when it comes to, like, the far right on Twitch, there were people, like, like very smaller people, like Red Pill Gaming. There was a streamer called Redneck who, um, like, I remember back in the day, he, like, went after me for being queer and stuff like that. And there's, but most of those people are no longer on the platform because eventually they'll mess up so bad that they'll just get banned. Terms of service. Exactly, yeah. terms of service to the gulag with them. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say, like, the most far-right people that are still on the platform, there's a lot of QAnon accounts, actually, still on Twitch. Mm-hmm. That I get, like, 500, 600, 700 viewers, um, which are always strange because they don't interact with the rest of the political Twitch. They're, like, their own little, like, subsection little island that's just isolated. Like a little, I, I think when you view the world that way, you're on your own yeah, little they're island. All, they're all their, like, yeah. little <laughs> North Koreas. They're their little <laughs> hermit <laughs> kingdoms on Twitch. Hopefully they don't have nukes. Uh, hopefully, hopefully not. <laughs> not that would, yet. That would not be yet. very sad. Then they can do the military coup and have the Myanmar uh, system <laughs> oh. so badly. But um, when it comes to the right wing on Twitch is I feel that the right wing on Twitch are obviously not as represented as the left wing. I think this has to do with the multiple factors. Number one, Twitch is a generally young platform and young people generally are left leaning. I think there was a lot of hubbub. I remember like five years ago that Gen Z is going to be the most conservative generation. Of, but a lot of that has kind of fallen through. Once I think Bernie Sanders, like, r- like I think ran the second time, I think people kind of came to the realization that- I think that, it's part like conservative comparatively to past generations of conservatives. Like there was just this conference this week that was really well attended by young Republicans, the National Conservatism Conference down in Florida. I think if you look at who's in the Republican Party now, they're way more conservative, especially on social issues, than when I was coming up in politics where we were in the libertarian moment. Yeah. But by and large, generationally, that doesn't really hold up. They're conservative in different ways. Yeah, I would say that, of course, there's conservative contingents. And like, like every new conservative movement or new left-wing movement is going to react to what the other side of the aisle is doing. And so since there's been so progress I- on social issues around trans issues mm-hmm. or LGBT issues or other issues, then you're going to have like uh, conservative movements born during that age react to that. Yes. Right? When people come of age politically, that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see um, on Twitch that I think a big part of why it's so left-wing is because it's young people. I think uh, another reason why it's um, so left-leaning is that 
Donald Trump was banned off the platform. Mm -hmm. If Donald Trump, who is in very many ways the intellectual leader of the Republican Party right now, it's who, if he runs again in 2024, is most likely going to win the nomination. If that person is banned off the platform, then it's kind of hard to think that people who support him are going to feel necessarily super wanting to go on the platform or that they really think that this is the platform for them. Even though there are Republicans, because obviously I staff my show with Republicans who come on and, and, oh, yeah. and present themselves. I have Republicans on all the time. I just I, I just think that the space and hasn't made itself extremely welcome to mm-hmm. the Republicans. And I think the last point I would make is that the left wingers have worked very, very, very hard to dig themselves in on the platform uh, on, on Twitch specifically. So I think it has to do with those those factors up to this point. But I mean, personally, like I think that Republicans um, for the last, you know, five, six years have talked about, hey, these we're going to go into these college campuses yeah. no matter if they want, want us here or not. So I'll just give them the same invitation on my show. If you're a conservative Republican, you want to come on, you want to engage with people who disagree with you, I'm always willing to host them. Anyone, you come to me, as long as you're literally not insane, I'll probably have you on. What was your political sort of animating moment? Why are you a political person in general? I know you do consulting on the side. You actually like work with candidates and outside groups. What, what made you want to get involved and in, in sort of like when you were talking about generational politics and what other people's animating moments were? How does that stack up for you? So I was I managed Patrick Wilhan, who was the first gay mayor of College Park's campaign. I did that. I, uh, I am a political consultant for 21st Century Democrats. I've done some stuff with unions. I've um, I've worked I worked on the Mike Gravel campaign when he ran for okay. president. But um, for me, it was that when I was young, I grew up in an environment that was a broken esque home. Uh, my mother was a heroin user. She used when she was pregnant with me, all the way up until eventually she died. And my father um, is somebody who has I don't know what to say really about my dad. Besides, he's I guess the way the best way to classify him would be like a pool hustler. I would say I, I don't know a good way to describe him that wouldn't give too much information. And so, seeing the problem she faced as a homeless resident in D.C. and going through drug use, mm-hmm. I wanted to find out a solution to exactly why she was put in that position and why, instead of getting the help she needed, she was criminalized and put in that position. And so, it pushed me to go into politics because I wanted to solve those issues. And that's why one of the first things I did in politics was speak before my city council about why we need to give uh, homeless residents in our city the right to vote um, by using public building addresses as their home address so they can vote in in, in city council elections because if there's anybody who needs representation in a government more, it's the people who are the most underserved and the most desperate. So I would think it would be the unhoused populations. And so I would say that it was those personal experiences that pushed me to uh, get into politics. It wasn't really hobbyism. It was because I, I felt these political realities in my life when my mom uh, sadly passed away in 2017 when I was still in uh, school. I'm sorry to hear that. I really admire, though, that you took something so difficult in your life and created something so good out of it. I didn't even realize that homeless residents were having that trouble voting, but now thinking about it, it totally makes sense. And my organization works on everything from harm reduction to criminal justice reform. So these are issues I've seen a little bit tangentially. But how did how did your action turn into this and what you're doing now? Because, you know, being an advocate, um, working on campaigns, working for people you believe, how does that go hand in hand? With, uh, with streaming, with having the debates, because a lot of times people who are very political don't want to have the debates. They don't want to have those tough conversations. What draws you to that? So I would think that when it comes to my um, my IRL politics, that came before my online 
presence. And I think that's something that most people should take note of. Because I think a lot of people want to say opinions. And everybody has opinions. Yes. But it's, it's easy to have an opinion. It's a lot more difficult to have an informed opinion about something you've interacted with. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to work on campaigns. I wanted to work in city politics. I wanted to work locally, which a lot of people don't want to put in the legwork to do before going out and doing the commentary. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I tried to do before I engaged with the space. And so that meant when I engage, engage with the space and then people would, would say uh, things like advocate for burning your bust or things that like didn't really make sense to me like on a political level, um, the experiences I had helped me like know that like, I could kind of say, okay, guys, this is why this doesn't work and this is what, where you should actually go if you want to get politically involved. A huge thing for me is that people will walk up to me specifically uh, when I was in Tennessee um, for the recent FearFest conference where I went to somewhere where mostly most people there disagreed with me and I was happy to do it. I was happy to be given a, uh, a space where I can engage people who disagreed with me. But people walked up to me and said, how do I get involved in politics? And that's something that I think I get that a lot of other political creators don't get is because people know that since I've had that experience, I can somewhat point them in, in the direction of, hey, wh what's going on in your county council member? What's going on with your city council? Do you know who your city councilmen are? Do you know how to find it out? There's usually resources that's the real. Online. That's the real thing. I mean, that's the real 100%. deal that makes the most impact on people. And the way that you're talking makes me feel like you fall in with sort of this new wave of democratic socialists. But I, I get the sense that that's also not true. You talked about 21st century Democrats. There's this working class ethic, right? Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself a sort of rank-and-file Democrat or reformer or one of these democratic socialists? So I want to say one thing on the last question first before I answer yeah. that. So recently I was, um, I was recently elected to um, the board of the uh, North College Park Community Association, which is a citizens group in North College Park. And while I was hosting one of the debates, I heard one of the debates um, engaged between the city council people about how we're going to get $22 million dollars from the federal government due to all of the stimulus bills and reconstruction packages and everything else. And hearing them talk about the stormwater management, hearing them talk about speed bumps and local programs to tutor kids in our community, the schools I went to, Hollywood Elementary School, the school I went to, hearing that, that was magical. And I could hear directly from these city council members how indirectly in my community I was going to help. You don't hear Joe Biden call out your, your local elementary school. You don't hear them talk about the people in your community. $22 million is a lot of money. And if you're engaged in those local city politics, you can help control to make sure that money goes to where it's actually important. And so that's why I'd say before you ever try to get involved on in national politics or congressional campaigns or anything like that, get involved on the local level because that can have a, a massively transformative experience for you on a personal level and most certainly for your community. It's agonizing work being involved on the local level. We, My family were involved pretty intimately in Manassas, Virginia at this point from zoning boards and architectural committees and all of these different, like even beautification committees down mm -hmm. to like what flowers are going to be on every corner of your city. There are actual people who have to volunteer yeah. their time to work on those things on a city by city basis. I think what a lot of people are concerned about, particularly like with the Democratic Party and sort of operators on the local level though, is like, you know, when a school board or a city council is working on changes, they're talking about things that are so nebulous and beyond their actual concerns. Like, 
updating the schools, updating the air conditioning. Instead, they want to always talk about, and I saw this in my own city council, renaming the schools, right? Mm -hmm. Renaming the yeah, schools. Yeah, like the vanity kind yeah, of stuff. The vanity stuff. Like it's just culture, culture, culture stuff yeah. all the time. Let's relitigate history rather than let's fund schools. Let's make sure that people can get back to classrooms so that parents can go to their jobs and make a living. Mm -hmm. I just feel like the Democratic Party is completely distracted, and you're seeing that play out in the Virginia governor's race right now, which voting day is today when we're taping this. I would say that the culture war for me is a distraction. It's always been a distraction yeah. from, I think, many of the main issues. Now, I do think there are issues that are important to me culturally. Gay marriage was something that was very important to me. I think trans issues are very important to me. They are. But I also think that when you talk about these like Mr. Potato Heads, like, can I actually ask, has the Mr. Potato Head issue affected you on a deep emotional level? Right. I don't know what to marriage? do with myself anymore. My identity has been completely unraveled by the yeah. disappearance the of Mr. Seuss Potato stuff, Head. The Mr. Potato Head stuff. Yeah. This is stuff to distract <laughs> you, to take you off of the real issues. I mean, the $22 million to my local government is going to have a much bigger impact on my life and the life of the generation of, 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 of that's going to come after me more than anyone else. And that's why when everybody was debating Mr. Potato Head, I was much more interested about the $22 million. When everybody yeah. was talking about Dr. Seuss, I was much more interested about changing my city's constitution to make it so young people could participate in city politics because it blocked me from running because they were trying to stop young people from running in my city. And I changed the constitution. I went out there with local activists to change the constitution of our city so that would be possible. And I think a lot of these culture war issues, I think Democrats could do better on the economy, much better running on the economy. It's the economy, stupid, is an old saying, but it's true and it works for Democrats. And I think it's it's a failure of Democratic leadership and messaging that when it comes to polling, people still think that the Republican Party, that I disagree with on economics fundamentally, is the party of good economics. And I think it's a failure of messaging and being on the back foot constantly on the culture war. I mean, the right's doing that a lot, too. They're always getting tripped up by the culture war. And there's bits and pieces of the culture war where I understand why it's important, for sure. But a lot of it is, like you're saying, with the Dr. Seuss stuff, it's like, okay, well, some regulations are kind of messing with people, so maybe we take care of this first. Um, broadly, why do you think it is that people don't aren't really interested in the local level? Like, why do you think people want, is it just vanity, or is there something else? Do they not understand how government fundamentally works in your experience? I think a lot of it has to do with, number one, the decay of local news is a huge issue. We just, in my city, just got our newspaper. We just got a newspaper, as in we didn't have one for years. And there wasn't much. I would actually go to talk to my mayor, who I was, who I'm still great personal friends with, be like, where do I go to get like news yeah. on like local city politics? And he'd be like, well, you can get it from this guy, but this guy just is a blog and it's kind of that. I was like, so there's not really much. Well, I put out a newsletter. It was, okay, but that's, as much as I love you, that's a, kind of a biased source to get it directly from yeah. the mayor. Like, here's what you should believe, right? right? Of course. Like, I don't need yeah. the, the, the Ministry of Information when it comes to local city politics. And we just got College Park here and now, which is the city that, that I'm engaged in politics. And so I think one of it has to do with the decay of, of local news that's supposed to be informing people directly to the doorstep and, like, like not having the, like, social media and, and just the money backing the local news stories. I think another thing is, People don't see local news as glamorous. You're not going to have the 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 culture war issues on those local on the on as much as the local level. You're going to have the 22 million dollars. You're going to have zoning issues. You're going to have beautification and dealing with these issues of like gentrification, beautification without gentrification. And these issues are a lot less engaging than say 
oh boy, I, I really want to get angry about uh, cuties, or oh but, boy, I really want to get But don't you think that, that like, that's yeah. connected to the sort of instant gratification and, and constant over-engagement culture that we generally have? Like when you are involved in national politics, being involved on Twitter is like a way to actually just sort of scream at the sky about the way things are. But when you're working on the local level, it takes blood, sweat, and tears, sometimes yep. years to get stuff actually done. But I, I really feel like the energy on the left is towards massive sweeping reforms all the time. I think that's the nature of being progressive. I agree with you. And I would say right now, I see the right concentrating hardcore on school boards. Now, a lot of it has to do with because they're very concerned about CRT and issues to me that aren't. It's, it's very constructive in a way, though, like to be that concerned finally about school board politics. I would say <laughs> it, is, it is good to see people engage on school board politics. Yeah. I just wish it was on issues that I thought mattered when it comes to the school board, because I think about the funding of the schools in my community. I think about tutoring programs, after school programs, making sure the schools are safe for children. I remember I was going to, and this is public information, so I'm yeah. fine saying it, College Park Academy. And I went to the Diamondback, which is a UMD newspaper. And I did an investigative story with them showing that our school's walls were, were complete, like, if you leaned on them too hard, they would cave in. Oh and this was gosh. a brand new charter school that Larry Hogan, the governor of our state, went to and championed as the future of education in our state. And if you leaned on the walls too hard, it would cave in. I saw them as the governor was coming in, putting posters over holes in the walls to make the school look better. And I'm like, this is a massive story. I go to I go to state senators, I go to delegates, and I'm like, here, look at this, because I went to Maryland General Assembly to work as a page. And they would be like, but oh. But what about we change the name of the school? <laughs> and then I go to, to, I believe it was Wallace Lowe, who was the, was well, I didn't go to this person, but I know he yeah. found out about this. And I got basically almost every student in the school to sign on a petition saying, we feel unsafe here. Not only did it have students, it had teachers, student government, everything. And then we have that petition go to Wallace Lowe. And what is the response? Oh, we heard like one kid complained or something. Oh. And that's all that happened. And that is the same environment that is still at the school to this day. And- we can talk about that, yeah. but that type of work it took me to get that story in the diamond pack, that took months. Yeah. I got footage, documented pictures, and that's the whole time when I'm not supposed to be taking pictures of that. I'm not supposed to be taking videos. I'm supposed to not highlight this because it doesn't make certain administration officials look good. And putting in that type of effort, comparative to just saying CRT bad, CRT bad, much easier. Well, yeah. You know, I, th I think parents are entitled to their opinions about what's going on in the curriculums. They does not... It is not imaginary that that different school boards all around the country, mine out right in here in Northern Virginia, radically overhauled their their agenda to include you know diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, and actually change the context of all the books that they teach in. That matters to people, and people are concerned about it. And the the response has been either this isn't happening, there's nothing to see here, or you know these people are dangerous, get out. Like Saturday Night Live did a skit a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and in the skit. Uh, the school board was meeting and they wanted to talk about COVID policy and keeping kids safe at school. Mm -hmm. And then, so you have rabble rousers coming in and they're just shouting like, but CRT, but history, but da, 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 da. And the school board's keeping them contained like, no, 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 we need to talk about masking policy. That's not what is going on at school boards where they're trying to work on opening schools. People want, can sit, care about the funding of schools, but right now they can't even send their kids to them in a lot of states. Like Virginia right now is the seventh most restrictive state left in the country on school policy and people being able to send their kids to them in the first place. I think people feel betrayed by this system altogether from the funding to actually the bureaucrats who run them. 
I would say that I do believe that this is a this is a big country and there's policies all across this country. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if you have over 360 million people in the country, you're going to find school boards in this country that are doing ridiculous stuff. I know if my own school board has done things that are ridiculous. I know school boards all across this country have done things that are ridiculous. But I also think that these issues, when it comes, like a lot of times get overhyped. And, and that they, we concentrate on these issues that are not nearly as of importance than when we come to like funding and um, like actually rebuilding curriculum. So when it comes to CRT, this is the thing that I believe. What exactly would we like to see when it comes to the conversations about the history of race in this country? Instead of us saying like, we need to stop CRT. Let's say you just despise CRT. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's a fine opinion to have. Let me ask you, how would you like to see these issues actually approached? I would like to see an honest retelling of history to children. I don't want to tell children that the Republicans are racist and the Democrats are all good. I just want to give them an honest telling of history so then they can come to their own conclusions about what is the best way to move forward in this country. When people say that, I kind of wonder where the heck they went to school because like, I learned about this stuff at every turn of American history, mm-hmm. going through the public school system myself. You learn about slavery. You learn about the Reconstruction period. You learn about people being blocked out of the voting process. Yeah. You learn ad nauseum about the Civil Rights Movement. Like I feel like it is all you learn about in school. What they want to change, though, is talking about the way in which contexts of power interact with people's lives today. And I think that that's valuable. Like, right, so the GI Bill after World War II. We don't learn enough about how the GI Bill created a racial caste system of home ownership in this country where generational wealth was pushed straight into the, into white families after World War II and blocked black families even after, you know, the period of the civil rights movement from easy access to home loans to have gener- intergenerational wealth. Like that makes a really big difference. And it's not enough to fall back on like pull yourself up by your bootstraps on that. But I don't feel like it is truthful to say that you know, people who are defending CRT and ethic, they just want honest history told. People are already teaching history. I would say that I do think that they said that slavery exists in schools. I do believe they that do they do say, that. I do believe that <laughs> they've talked about the history of the civil rights movement. Yeah. But as we say, you are talking about how there are certain school districts doing ridiculous stuff with CRT. I can tell you that there are school districts in this country which will give different interpretations of the Civil War and the Reconstruction period than what is an honest retelling of history, which mm-hmm. will be a lot more sympathetic to, say, Southern slave owners than it will be, for example, to the Reconstruction period. Will it categorize the North as carpetbaggers that came into communities to try to take advantage of the South and that Reconstruction um, was not this was this was this thing that was trying to take advantage of a downtrodden South when Reconstruction largely failed on its initiatives. When you see how Black people started to get elected into offices in the South, they got elected all across the South, and the Klan, of course, was doing terroristic actions to stop them. But they were. Then, when American troops left the South, you saw those Black politicians get purged on every level as state governments tried to clamp down on black people's right to vote and black people's right to get elected. And I think that things like the failure of reconstruction, redlining, um, when it comes to um, like black communities being kept out of what it would be considered more prosperous communities, mm-hmm. these specifics I don't think are taught across the board in schools across this country. These are specifics that I didn't learn, and I was just I wasn't in high school not too long about ago. about the North Carolina coast, I think Wilmington having one of the the largest race massacres mm-hmm. um, of the of the nineteenth and nineteenth uh, century. Like 
we didn't learn about that in my own state, that yeah. Wilmington was the place of one of these biggest racist massacres. I was going to say redlining, too, or even the way in Long Island, like that a lot of bridges were built so immigrant trucks couldn't get under them. And now it's kind of awful because the whole system, like trucks have trouble driving around Long Island sometimes, which is kind of amusing that it, it hurt us years later as our economy grew. But from redlining, even the Jim Crow stuff, they taught us about Jim Crow but not how the relics were still there in some cases or how it's still affecting people or even, I know this is probably too nerdy to teach in schools, but really how regulations can do that, how it can have those consequences. And that matters. And I, but we're talking about like history curriculum. Yeah. And I think when people are screaming at the sky about CRT, I really don't feel that they are as upset about the specifics of history curriculums yeah. as they are about when their schools are working on diversity, equity, inclusion documents which change the way in which students are supposed to talk about themselves, their identities, sure. their class and victimhood status. Like I looked over those documents in my school district and I just I found it to be personally alarming what they were going to be framing yeah. to children about their color, talking to people and about race consciousness, like talking to white kids about like we really need to talk about whiteness. Whiteness was in our school document three times. I find that to be bothersome. I'm open to history book conversations all right. day. Mm -hmm. Those two things are very different. And I feel like there's DEI and there's CRT mm -hmm. and they kind of take you in different directions and we never know what we're debating. So the, the first thing I want to say is a big thing for me is teaching local and state history, which I think a lot mm -hmm. of people like yeah. to teach national history, but local and state history is super important because oh, totally. again, that is what's in your community. Just like I was talking about local, with so local politics. For example, yeah. we teach this idea that Maryland and I, I love Maryland so much, was this like mighty crusader and part of part of the Northern campaign against the South, which is true. We were part of the Northern Island Army, uh, but it's also true that Maryland's um, had a compromise with Abraham Lincoln that we would continue to be a slave state mm -hmm. during the Civil War. So while we had Marylanders fighting in the, fighting the South to end slavery, there was black people in Maryland still enslaved, yeah. working on plantations. And the hypocrisy there is monumental, where this was a crusade against slavery while... Uh, to compromise in order to win the war, we had to allow slavery within the North, which the hypocrisy is obvious. And that, the 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 bleeding through of that into other policies yeah. in Maryland, that which we still see in, in a lot of communities in Maryland to this day when it comes to, uh, for example, how um, the, there's a lot of areas in Maryland that are still rural and the underrepresentation of black farmers in that population. And I, I think that local and state history needs to be taught in schools more. Now, when it comes to the idea of CRT, of course, I can't answer for, for everyone, but I remember recently there was this poll that came out that was mm -hmm. super interesting to me because it really made me think about like what what where the conversation about CRT like is is like grounded. And the poll was that there was first was a question like what did people think of CRT? And it was it was strange because like it seemed that it was about I think 30% of the country that was like really, really opposed to CRT, right? And then they would reframe the question, and the question was what do you think about teaching the ongoing effects of American racism in public schools? Mm -hmm. And that exact same number, 30% opposed to that. Yeah. And that is what interested me because I think CRT has become a specter, a sure. boogeyman, where the real conversation I think needs to be had is not about the specifics of how do we teach kids whiteness or whatever. The, yeah. it, it should be how do we have a conversation about the about race and its presence in modern America right now. I, nobody's going to tie me to CRT. I'm not an espouser of CRT or I don't even think um, uh, most Democrats particularly even care about CRT specifically. I do think most Democrats and left-wingers do care about the ongoing effects of race in America. And I do think that in order for this country to continue to grow and in order for kids to be able to uh, grow up responsibly in a world where race still, even if you don't want it to, still sadly matters 
to even if you think it's just the media doing that, even if you think that, it still matters. So there has to be some conversation had with our young people in this country about race and how do we explain and have responsible conversations. Mr. Ro- one last thing, I'm yeah. sorry. No, Mr. you're fine. Mr. Rogers, I always say I try to have a Mr. Roger in, I don't know how to pronounce it, Mr. Rogerian politics. I love Ro- it. Rogerian. Rogerian, where we think that kids can't have adult conversations yeah. because yeah. the kids are simple. They're, we, we want to keep them innocent. And I think what you're doing there is you want to protect kids, and that's so noble. And we're going to talk about Facebook later, how they're not protecting kids, so I'm excited about that. But I also think that Keeping kids in the in the dark is also going to be harmful for them because they're not going to be prepared for a lot of these situations. Mr. Rogers had a had a had a show, an episode where he talked about divorce, which mm-hmm. was so interesting to me, and I and I watch it a lot when I'm trying to think about children's education. And he responsibly talked about mm-hmm. how divorce can be hard, how it can be struggle uh, be a struggle, but your parents still love you, they care about you, and he explained it with puppets in a way that was responsible to children. I don't think we need to sit children down with an Angela Davis book and like talk about yeah. that and like go and get you. But I do think that we need to take a Mr. Roger approach to teaching them about the the history. Of, of racism in this country and and what we need and and I know it's ongoing effects like he did when he famously took a step in a kiddie pool with a black man. I mean, I think all that that is beautiful, and I, I think at the end of the day, I want those conversations to be had. I have them at my dinner table very frequently because I can't not talk about heavy stuff at my table with my daughter. Got to ruin wife. Thanksgiving, huh? It's just what I do, and she's very mature. I think but, because of how you treat her. But I I don't I don't think people should trust any just public school teacher to be the chairman of those conversations. I just, I don't think that that is the space that they should be primarily focused on when they should be focused on reading and math and trying to make sure that everybody knows these things so that they can go out and have the best shot at a successful future. One of the things like just to kind of concede here, I agree with you. And I think most libertarians do very much as well about like institutionally racist policies that have ruined people's lives. My animating political moment I was working in hospitality before I got involved in politics. I went to this conference and I heard this speaker talking about the criminal justice issue and the, the, the mass incarceration numbers in this country. And my animating thing at that time had been the welfare state and dependency on government, single, fa- uh, single mother homes, and intergenerational poverty. These were the things that I wanted to solve. And I had never heard someone tell me just how much damage it does generation over generation when someone goes to jail for a marijuana crime or some bullcrap charge and then their kids grow up without their dad and then they end up falling into trouble themselves and then their kids end up growing up without dads and it just goes and goes and goes and it destroys communities. And that is exactly, I mean, when you talk about CRT, the effect that race and policy has had on outcomes today, that's what that is. Yeah. And I, I have no problem discussing it. Yeah. I, re- I remember having to drop off my dad at jail and how much of a weird effect that had on how I viewed um, the criminal justice system and my dad. And knowing that I couldn't visit my mom because she was locked up for drug charges. And not having her present most certainly had an impact on my life. I mean, it, 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 it robbed me of that experience of having a, a normal relationship with my mother it affected me very much when it comes to my mental health in my in my formative years because that those those early years are what's most important to to a, a child's development is those first like one two three four five that's when you need to get them to start reading that's when you need to get them to start engaging and those were the years where my mom was forgetting me at school to go do heroin and that was also like where I had to deal with experiences I should not have been dealing with at that age 
And so when I think about like the effects on the drug war of not only not properly addressing the drug epidemic in this country, but also then separating those parents from the children mm-hmm. for, for years and years and years, it's not helping. It's not helping at all. And I think this is something that should be bipartisan. Yeah. But sadly, I think a lot of like conservatives and a lot of lefties actually agree on the drug war. But then the politicians, they don't because they take money from certain medical institutions and other groups of people who want the drug war to continue. Mm-hmm. They want this incarceration to continue. And I think that, for me, is something that should be bipartisan and we should be fighting on a bipartisan basis on, just like I think we should be fighting on a bipartisan basis on to combat Facebook, which we're going to, again, talk about later. Uh, <laughs> but we're not seeing it because I think established powers within certain parties. And I also hold Joe Biden to this because he has yet to endorse the legalization of marijuana. You know what? I actually, I'm glad you mentioned Facebook twice because I had forgotten to bring it up. And so let's <laughs> let's wrap up on talking a little bit about Facebook mm-hmm. and the future of this platform, which does not protect its users very well. Though not I think you could, you could, I, I still don't really believe in in uh, Congress having a say in what goes on on Facebook. But they are launching the Metaverse. So oh my gosh! Facebook is rebranded, or you know, they've renamed their company. Where was Meta. the lightning strike? I was expecting right. like some evil. Meta. So first, I'm sorry. I'm the only one who's been talking about this extremely important issue with the metaverse. It's just like the Rick and Morty episode with the teeny-verse. It's like, why would... It's right out of the episode. And I'm like, this is literally Rick and... We're in a Rick and Morty episode. Like, it's bad enough when we're in a Simpsons episode or South Park episode. We're full Rick and Morty. Are you scared out of your mind about this metaverse thing? Are you the type, you know, online person who's like, this is going to be great. We're going to have a great time in the metaverse. So <laughs> the thing is, I, I number one... If you want my honest opinion, you know how we're talking about the culture wars distraction? Yeah. I feel the metaverse right now is a huge distraction for uh, yeah, people yeah. right now. It is distract from the whistleblowers. Let's be honest. Like, man, the thing is, they're talking like, yeah, this will be years before much of this rolls out. I heard one person tell you it might be a decade before oh we see gosh. much of this technology. I'm like, so why are you announcing it? Oh, it's because the whistleblowers. Look over there. Look over there. Quick. It's like it's like if Nixon just like wanted to play a card trick during the Watergate hearings. It's like, oh, like we all see what you're trying to do here. I will say I do enjoy making fun of the metaverse, though. And also like the legless people. Like, I love that the technology isn't super there to create the legs on people. So they're just like, for now, the metaverse is legs like largely so torsos. Like, we're just torsos now. The metaverse, you will not have legs your legs will not get tired. And I think that's a positive because my legs get tired a lot. Yep. I'm just looking at this future. And I and we should talk about your, your point about this being a distraction. But, <laughs> you know, just I, I just watched Ready Player One for, uh-huh. the, for the second time on an airplane ride back from a trip last week. And then two days later, oh my the metaverse is announced. And I, I'm looking at the exact same thing, the exact same premise, except for you're looking at this dark future where the inventor of, you know, the Oasis or the uh, the metaverse is not an inspired genius like Halliday in Ready Player One who had these high-minded ideals about freedom and individualism and people going their own way. You've got the Zuck. And I just, <laughs> I just don't trust him at this point because I think he used to be that person. Yeah. He used to be the disruptor and the guy who had this vision of like a, a united world and all that stuff. But now I think he's just an operator. I mean, for me, looking at this, right, I, the same problems I have, like, first off, a lot of this is going to be kept out of, of people I'd like to be included of it because of the price of virtual technology, because of the price of a lot of this technology. 
Um, it's going to mean it's going to be like upper middle class to higher income people that are going to have access to a lot of this because of like VR, just the reality of VR. I love and that it's a virtual reality just for rich people. That is fantastic. Just wonderful. rich people virtual. I mean, you know, and, businesses. and businesses. And businesses are going to be the other thing, right? Yeah, and then they'll create a line of credit so that you can get yourself in debt to get the better gear and all that stuff. Yeah. Just like in the movie. And the thing is like, but when it comes to this, like people are banking on this. Epic yeah. Games got investors to put down 11, it was $1 billion wow. for this. One billion epic games, and that's like you know, creators of Fortnite. They yep. have like the huge yep. like epic game store. They're like a they're a huge player in, in the video game space. They're putting themselves out there. A lot of companies are throwing themselves into the ring on this immediately because they want to get ahead of the curve on this. So I do think the metaverse is something that obviously we should pay attention to because it's not it's not purely a distraction, even though it obviously is also a distraction. Uh, but I think a lot of the same privacy concerns. I would think like yeah. I would like look. The same way I feel insecure while browsing Facebook right now, I'm also going to feel insecure while having the VR and scrolling through whatever bet I want to buy on the Facebook Metaverse Marketplace. Yeah. Also, Metaverse, terrible name choice. It just, they sound, it's like unbelievable. But the hippie dippy roundtable in the Metaverse will be amazing. Mike, I've already <laughs> talked about, I wanted, I wanted, I've had so many different You've ideas. thought about I've it. Thought, I have thought about having a VR chat debate where you just have like this, like this, this anime girl arguing with a penguin on like gun oh, control. Oh, I love yes. that. Yes. I love that idea. Um, the future is going to be great. Big question. Uh, <laughs> which side is the penguin on? Uh, the penguin is very, very pro NRA. I, I mean, had a they, feeling. They're funded by the NRA 100%. That mm-hmm. makes sense. I figured in the future penguin would money. be. Nazi, Nazi penguins. We don't need that. Y'all, we are up against time. Wait, did you just say that people who <laughs> like guns are Nazis? Wow. No. Wait, why did you do I that? I didn't say it. She said NRA. <laughs> wow. And I was going to say that they were all right penguins, but whatever. <laughs> All right, that is it for this episode of Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Big thank you to Dylan Burns for a great discussion. And thanks, show, for being here as always. Uh, Next week marks the triumphant return of Andrew Heaton to Right Now. And we're going to be putting him to work interviewing me about my new book, How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. So if you'd like to read along, that book is on sale now in advance of its November 9th release. I did also narrate the audiobook myself, so you can get that on Audible. We'll see you then, and in the meantime, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Have a great week.